Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Just a quick note before we begin that we recorded this episode a while back and the audio quality is not optimal, uh, so it sounds a little bit like it's coming out of a tin can or something. So apologies for that, but I think you'll enjoy the content and the discussion. And thanks for all your support and those of you who listen and have either you know, given us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using uh, or uh, to those of you who have decided to give regularly to uh, OnScript and the Biblical World podcast, uh, we really appreciate that. You can find out more at onscript.study forward slash biblical world um, and look back through some of our previous episodes. We've got a lot of good ones on the way, including a, a five-part uh, episode series on different views of the Exodus and stuff on the Jewish context of the New Testament. So um, keep on listening and Feel free to send your feedback to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com uh, where you can let us know what you think. Uh, thanks so much and enjoy this episode. Uh, welcome back to OnScript Biblical World Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McKinney. Today I am joined by uh, my friend and co-host Oliver Hersey of Jerusalem University College. Uh, today Oliver and I are going to be talking about a number of different topics associated with biblical backgrounds, a topic that both of us really, uh, really appreciate. Uh, Oliver, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your academic background as well as your, your new position at Jerusalem University College? Absolutely, Chris. It's good to, good to be a co-host with you. I'm looking forward to this project and uh, what becomes of it. So thanks for all of you tuning in and, and listening to this podcast. We hope you find it insightful and that you learn from it. Uh, my name's Oliver. I am, uh, I'm a graduate of Trinity International University in the Deerfield, Chicago area of Illinois. And I uh, worked on a PhD under Jim Hoffmeyer uh, studying the book of Exodus and Egypt backgrounds in uh, that book. And I, uh, I recently graduated and I've actually assumed a new position at Jerusalem University College. I'll be working as their next president uh, in this next season. So I'm very excited about that and uh, looking forward, Chris, to uh, engaging all kinds of excellent scholars, people you know very well over in Israel as you did your studies over there and built many friendships. So very much excited about being a part of this project with you. Me too. Uh, I, I think that what we're doing is going to be, uh, most of all, from my perspective, lots of fun uh, for us hosts Absolutely. to get to talk to each <laughs> other, and particularly during these days of pandemic, when most of your conversation ends up being with your kids about Legos and Batman, which is all, always fun, uh, but it's nice to be able to expand and have conversations about things that we that we all love, and you know those, particularly those two institutions you mentioned, uh, Trinity as well as, as JUC, are um, of course, some of the, the big bastions of um, evangelical um, scholarship uh, that, that we'll try to pull from. And so it's great to, for us to, to, to talk today. And one of the things that we're going to, to, to look at uh, today is biblical backgrounds. In fact, that's going to be the big topic that is going to play a role throughout our, uh, throughout our podcast. It's going to come up again and again. And we thought today one of the, the things that we should do is really introduce what is a biblical background. Um, and to do that, we need to understand that the, that the Bible is made up of really a variety of, of course, variety of, of sources, variety of books, 
It's written over a, a very long uh, period of time. And so you can't just narrow it down to just the study of Greek and Hebrew or just the, the, the exegesis of a particular book and a particular passage, because you also have to engage with just really a wide variety of uh, particular disciplines. And really, this is what this podcast is about, is, is it's, it's dealing with biblical archaeology, uh, historical geography, uh, ancient languages, uh, especially, of course, Greek and Hebrew, but, but others such as Ugaritic and Akkadian and Aramaic and, and Egyptian. All these texts play a, a major role in how we understand uh, the stories. And so I would put all of those under the, the realm or under the, the term biblical backgrounds. Uh, but there are some other ones as well. And, and these are in the context of uh, the thought realm. That is to say, where you have ideas that are going to be passed on in the biblical text that are connected not just with the, uh, the biblical peoples, if we want to call them the Israelites, or at different times the, the Judahites and the Israelites, you know, the, the, the divided kingdom, or the Judeans later on, where they have uh, particular ideas expressed, but also from their neighbors that they, that they borrow from. Um, and these ideas, um, again and again, as we, as we excavate, as we read, ancient texts, as new things are uncovered, um, really one of the exciting things is the more we can see the connections between the ancient peoples of, um, of the Levant, uh, including, I would say, Egypt, uh, and also the, the biblical world. And that's actually one of the, the, the main things that we're going to look at today. Uh, in fact, we have a few examples of this that we'd like to, to draw out. And, and the first question uh, that I'll ask you, Oliver, is uh, why is uh, kind of a cultural awareness important for biblical study? Uh, and can you give us um, some examples of this? Like, what, what are some, like, your go-to examples for why this cultural awareness is important? Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think culture is so important. You know, though, like, like you said earlier, we can study the Hebrew, we can study the Greek, but these texts did not originate in a vacuum. These texts have interconnections with politics, with climate, with people, with different groups, and uh, there's levels also happening just in the, soci the social structures of the peoples of ancient Israel. You have, you know, hierarchy of kings and rulers, and you have militaries, and you have the common folk, the people who are at the level of perhaps the, the illiterate. And, and so the question is, how do we, you know, develop these, and then why are they important? I would suggest, you know, I, I want to use an example here just to help us. There's a passage that I've always loved. I, I wrote my, you know, my work on Exodus, and that's where my primary area of study has been for many years. But in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, this is right when Moses is uh, getting ready to, uh, you know, confront Pharaoh, and the plagues are about to begin. And in the text, it says this, it says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is what God is saying to Moses. Be encouraged, Moses. The Egyptians are going to know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and deliver the Israelites from their midst. So that's an interesting passage here that the Egyptians are going to know that it's Yahweh who's doing business here. How? When he stretches out his hand. 
Now that's an odd, you know, if I stretch out my hand, are you going to know that I'm Yahweh? Like, that's just so bizarre. Right, we, we have lots of examples in history of people stretching out their hands in ways yeah. that are very different, my, such as Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah. You know, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And my mom, I was going to use my mom, not Adolf Hitler, but <laughs> my mom stretched out her hand all the time. I mean, she had pointing her finger at me, telling me I was in trouble, whatever. But it's, it's striking that you have this phraseology here, and it's pretty well known, I think, in some circles of scholarship, but definitely not widely known uh, to those maybe listening. It's not known. I don't know. But there are many who wouldn't know what Jim Hoffmeyer and others have shown us in their research that we have, when you get to Egypt, if you've ever walked around through you know, the halls of Karnak or seen the reliefs, uh, you know, I'm thinking of one relief in particular, Seti the First. There's Seti the First standing with his legs spread apart, and his, you know, his left hand is out holding a bunch of, uh, you know, knuckleheads by the tops of their head, and then he's got his outstretched arm with, you know, his his staff or his his smiting stick, whatever you want to call it, and he's about to smash the skulls of his enemies. And I think to myself, wow, when you walk through Egypt and you see all those things, and Chris. You, have you gotten a chance to be, you've gotten there to yes, Egypt before, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so you know exactly these scenes that we are talking about. When you notice that across every one of these walls, there is a type scene being shown of Pharaoh with his outstretched arm. It dates all the way back to the old kingdom, period. We're talking over 5,000 years ago, where you have, you know, the Narmer palette with the original pharaohs, it's the beginning of that scene, and we watch it echo through the Old Kingdom period, the Middle Kingdom period, into the New Kingdom period over the course of several millennia, and it becomes a staple in Egyptian ideology. So when God says, the Egyptians will know that I'm Yahweh, that I'm the king, God, that I'm here to do business, how are they going to know? Because I'm stretching out my arm. And your God, your Pharaoh, every single time has always painted himself in that position with an outstretched arm. And so when we read that and we encounter that, when you have that Egyptian background in your mind, you begin to understand what this passage is trying to do and the whole plague narrative that follows. It is trying to paint a picture of who God is, who the true king is, as opposed to what everybody in the world and perhaps even that narrative has assumed the real king to be, which is Pharaoh in this case, the unnamed Pharaoh. So, I mean, that's just one. I, Chris, I don't know. What do you what do you think when you hear that? Is that- Yeah, no, I think... I think this is a very important connection, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, before ancient Egypt was discovered, uh, before, and even though we, we've lived and grown up uh, generations now in the context of knowing about ancient Egypt, perhaps even uh, knowing the name King Tut before you could be able to name some of the U.S. presidents, uh, that, that kids know it, and no, they don't. They might not know that Tutankhamun is kind of a crummy, not not really that important of a pharaoh. But they know him because of the discoveries. They know him because of the artwork that exists. They know ancient Egypt because of it's just fantastic reliefs as well as writings, and it's something that's just entered our understanding um, in in the modern world. But the reality is, is that if uh, it's fairly new, it's not until we have the uh, invasions of uh, Napoleon, that it was discovered, that it was understood. And so for the better part of uh, 1800 years, uh, these potential connections that could be made with, with ancient Egypt 
were were not made. They weren't they weren't known. And so this is one that I, I think is is fairly obvious to to make a connection between the outstretched arm of Yahweh that he claims to have power over, and he's comparing and contrasting himself with what uh, Pharaoh was was supposed to do, have this outstretched arm. And so I think it's just a uh, an obvious but very clear and, and I think very powerful. And one of the things that I, I, I've, I've thought a lot about when, when we think about this is it, it's it's kind of a double cultural background because it's not the, the, the readers of the book of Exodus weren't Egyptians. The readers of the book of Exodus and the readers of the Bible are, of course, Israelites or, or later Jews who read it. And so it's actually they are they're interacting with a culture, the Egyptian culture, which they see of this outstretched arm on the, the wall reliefs of all the places that they would have interacted with. And then they are saying uh, through, the, uh, through their scriptures and, of course, through, through the writings of the books of, of Exodus, and God is acting in a cultural background way. In other words, he is illustrating who he is by, by saying he's better than the culture of power that is surrounding them, and so it's just a very powerful thing. I uh, that's one. Of, so going back to the original question about you know why is it so important to understand a cultural background? You just hit that on the head there with the fact that there is this when you understand that God is subverting the uh, subverting the um, culture and He's turning it on its head, so to speak. You know, that's that's significant. You wouldn't understand that if you didn't understand what was happening with the current culture. And it's not just the iconography. We have texts in ancient Egypt um, that refer to an Egypt, Egyptian. It's the outstretched arm is his strong arm, his chethesh dot F. F is the um, suffix for the third person. You know, it's his strong arm. And we encounter these in texts and literary motifs as well. The first Hittite marriage narrative, uh, which is one that I translated from my dissertation, that's in there. It refers to Pharaoh Ramses II in that position with his outstretched arm. And so it's a common motif, not just visually in the iconography, but also in the textual literature as well. We encounter this motif. So you think about Exodus, you know, what motif happens over and over again? Well, it's this motif, the strong arm. It's over and over again. He talks about the, out, the strong hand, um, the outstretched arm. The Israelites leave with an outstretched arm. It's over and over again all through the text in different passages. And what's fascinating and what Jim Hoffmeyer has shown us and as well as other scholars is that this concept is not prevalent in other cultures. So it's a nuanced cultural component too. So that's one of the things I think we have to pay attention to is that cultural things can be nuanced from one culture to another. Today I was lecturing on ancient Near Eastern law codes. Well, law codes only exist in the Fertile Crescent. We don't have any copies of extant law codes in ancient Egypt. So when we want to start doing comparative work or thinking about the cultural backgrounds for legal matters that are found in Torah, we want to take into account that it's only coming out of Mesopotamia or, you know, modern day Turkey or ancient Anatolia. And so it's, it, I think that's another thing to keep in, in the back of our mind as we're thinking through cultural backgrounds, that they are nuanced respectively to the cultures um, that lend them to being borrowed. Yeah, borrowed I, think, I, I, I hate ahead. that word borrow. I, I know you used it earlier and, and, 
borrow makes it sound like yeah and i know i know you know because we've had these conversations so i know that you, you get it but you know it's not, i don't know if they're i don't know if it's israelites borrowing it necessarily or it's like it's like did did the middle east we've all had coke when we when we visit israel does that mean they're borrowing uh atlanta georgia uh culture because you drink coke uh, it's it's more of just the you know, kind of the ooze of, of of culture that exists that's out there that you tap into, and and I think that that's one of the really the compelling points that you just kind of you pointed to, is these can be indicative of a date. These can be distinctive to a particular period, and you pointed to the law codes. Um, I was thinking also besides you know besides these law codes that we can you can point out in Exodus and Leviticus and so on of Mesopotamia and the Hittite stuff. Um, but even if we just even if we just think about the idea of comparing New Kingdom Egyptian pharaohs and their language of um, of, of making themselves powerful, of, of establishing this exalted status, we compare that to the Assyrian kings of the Neo-Assyrian period, which have a major overlap with uh, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible period of particularly. First and Second Kings, so we're talking about from the ninth to the seventh century. It's not like those kings didn't think they were, you know, the 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 the, uh, the, the greatest thing on earth. They did, and they talk about how wonderful they are. They talk about how they, you know, climb up to the tops of mountains and cut down cedars, and they all these. But they don't say, you know, I am going to destroy such and such, the kings of Hatti, for instance, with my strong outstretched right arm. Uh, they don't say that. This is something that you see in Egypt. And so that's why it's so important. The only Akkadian, the only Akkadian versions of outstretched arm, the only Akkadian versions that we have of that phrase are found in the Amarna letters. It happens three times in the Amarna corpus. It doesn't happen anywhere in Mesopotamian literature that we are aware of. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. They have other ways. And that is like the same thing you have in the Bible, right? Because they are borrowing to use that word, or they are living in that cultural ooze, reappropriating, whatever, whatever you like, the, the, the language of a pharaoh. And they're saying, you know, we're, we're kind of doing the same thing. And that's, that's essentially what we're, you know, we're saying that, you, that, you, that the Bible does. Now, you mentioned these, uh, these Hittite treaties, and, and recently I was doing some work on, uh, I read through all of the bulletin text and all of the, you know, the, 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 the Hittite, uh, the treaty, as well as the as well as the, the battle scene that Ramses talks about. And, and it's just really shocking the amount of uh, times Ramses talks about how powerful he is, how he, he, he strikes with this outstretched right arm. And so what, what I think people don't realize, because we can make these points um, ourselves and we can draw allusions to them, but I think one of the, the most convincing things that you can do um, when, you're, when you're studying this is to actually just read the sources yourselves. Just go open up, uh, whether it's something like ancient Near Eastern texts or context of scripture, or even just do a, a, a Google search. And we can put some of these in the episode description. And then just read the text and see if you see these similarities, because they're, they're really there and they're very powerful uh, when you read them and you see how the, the Bible is, is really turning these things on their head. It's using this background to make these points. And so... Uh, as Oliver was indicating, this is just one of those, I think, go-to obvious examples uh, that we can point to when we can see how culture, and, and particularly the, the realm of ideas, can relate to what happens in the biblical text. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, 
it raises the question. I think you're raising it without without saying it, but I think you're raising it. How do we develop an understanding of ancient Near Eastern culture and what informs the writers of the Bible? How do we develop awareness about these cultural backgrounds? And I think your suggestion, Chris, is really important. I think it's super helpful to be in the original texts. And if you are not able to <clears throat> look at the original languages, there's great English translations out there. I think of the um, the four volumes edited by William Hollow and Lawson Younger on the context of scripture. I think of, you know, the older versions, which are a little dated now, but, you know, James Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Texts. But they're wonderful. And Google, I mean, just Google texts. I was Googling the Code of Hammurabi earlier today and just seeing what was out there. And there's translations everywhere. Can, can, I, can I just add one other, one other thing there? Um, and what I would recommend... Yeah, what, what I would recommend is, is those are exactly the sources I would say. And the great thing is, is that a number of Bible software programs have built these in to where you can actually, let's use the example of context of scripture. You can have all of these different original texts, of course, they're the translations, but they've actually linked them to, uh, to footnotes that have references to biblical passages. And so if we refer back to these texts that we're talking about that have this motif of the outstretched right arm, you can actually uh, put in the text outstretched right arm or even have the biblical reference like Exodus 7-5, and it will pull up all these references. So there's been a lot of scholarship that's done that has now been greatly enhanced by such a program as Accordance Bible Software, which has it built in to where you can make these connections and you can see and read these texts for yourselves. And so I, I, I totally agree. There's no substitute for, for that type of, of study. Um, and the other thing I would say is, is that once you become aware of this, and once you think of these cultural backgrounds, uh, there might be some tendency to push back, you know, in the sense that, like, we think of the book of Exodus um, uh, talking about how we have the law coming down, delivered uh, to Moses, or, for instance, even, like, the design of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle as somehow not having a cultural background to it. And yet, when we've looked at the uh, and compare the, the design of the Ark of the Covenant and the design of the tabernacle to what we see in ancient Egypt, and a famous one is to compare it to uh, the discoveries uh, of King Tut, it's pretty clear that there's similarities. And so people might say, well, that's coming from you know a divine source. Why should it have a cultural background? Uh, but the reality is, is these cultural background elements are there. We see it with the ideology. And, and even if we just think about language, language itself doesn't exist in, in a vacuum. You know, Hebrew and Greek and all of these languages have a long history. Um, and so I, I feel like in, even in scholarship among, among evangelicals, there's this idea of, you know, language is okay, but the further we push in terms of cultural backgrounds, uh, the more dangerous it becomes. And I think that's inherently inconsistent uh, be because even the ideas that are expressed in the language are coming from culture. Um, so you, you, you can't really separate the two. Um, language is simply a product of culture. I mean, language and culture are so intertwined and, and interconnected theoretically. You, 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 
we're communicating all the time a culture. It is, it's, a, it's leaking from us. You know, and just going back to the example of the tabernacle, the tabernacle being set up in a strikingly similar fashion to the military tent of Ramses II uh, is startling. And not only that, it's it's that and more because in the Bible's not this is where the Bible's not just borrowing something; it's taking something and somehow adding its own twist. Because what way do you enter the tabernacle from? You enter what side? You enter from the east. Yeah, you enter from the east. Yeah. And what side were Adam and Eve banished from the garden on? The east side. And why were they banished from the tree? Uh, they were banished from the garden because they were being protected from the tree of life. What's in the middle of the tabernacle? It's this golden lampstand that scholars have suggested represents the tree of life. And so what's the way back to the tree of life? Well, it's through sacrifice and through, you know, bloodshed of carcasses and barbecue and smelling all kinds of wonderful things. But it's this collision. All of a sudden you have the tabernacle that's this collision of garden theology meets military camp. And uh, it's all in preparation for the advancement into the promised land. It's striking and interesting. And I think we need to ask the questions to develop this awareness. We need to observe, like you're saying, read the texts, listen to them, look at them. We need to also smell culture, taste culture, feel it. And then I think there's this cycle that is constantly going on where we do these things and we're also asking questions. Well, why did Abraham cut a bunch of animals in half after God told him to get five animals? God didn't tell him to cut the animals in half. That's weird. Genesis 15, right? What did it mean? Who's involved in the process? You know, where is it happening geographically? You know, why is it that the woman at the well in the New Testament meets Jesus in Samaria of all places and starts talking about five husbands? How is that intricately tied to what happened there hundreds of years ago. So these things are happening and I think they're meant to conjure up things. But if we aren't familiar with the text, familiar with how it feels, familiar with how it tastes and able to see and experience the cultures around it, even currently modern ones, I think we won't be able to develop healthy cultural awareness, which is why, Chris, everybody has to come on a short-term trip to Jerusalem University College. Shame. I had to do a shameless plug there for my institution. <laughs> uh, agreed, agreed. And and if you haven't gone to, to JUC, Jerusalem University College, uh, you should. Three-week tour, stay a semester. I did for, for two years and got an MA there. It's a, it's a wonderful place. And, and I, I chuckle also because this is precisely the kind of thing that you learn by being involved in that environment. And, and I would just make a comment here and say, it's not like... Um, you, when you pick up the Bible, if you don't understand Hebrew and Greek, if you have a translation, uh, or you don't understand the biblical archaeology, biblical background, culture, all these things, that you can't understand the basis of the story. And I would say that I would have some pushback to the idea that um, biblical backgrounds all make these foundational shifts on how we understand uh, the, the, main, the main parts of the biblical stories. I, I think that there's a certain level of translation that goes on um, that we can understand the stories. But what it does do is it adds so much depth to the way we understand these stories. Uh, like you mentioned in Genesis 15, you know, the cutting up of the animals. Uh, it's pretty clear that it's sacrifice. And even if you didn't know anything about Hittite vassal suzerain treaties uh, of the second millennium, you might say, well, you know, maybe Abraham or God will be like these animals. But the fact that we have it 
in these treaties that they're doing this and they're saying that if you don't uphold your bargain, you will be like these animals. We, we can add that whole other layer to it that makes it, I think, much more interesting and places it in this very thoroughly human context that's ancient, but also is relevant to us now. Well, how many things pass through that path, Chris? Because so for those listening, Chris, you, you just hit it on the head. There's a blood there's a blood path ceremony going on where you cut these animals in half that clearly Abraham is familiar with, and they could be from the Hittite Susan and Vassal treaties. Sometimes they would do this with a prisoner or an animal. We have texts also that indicate this in Mesopotamia. So we have texts that suggest this cutting in half, this treaty process. And ideally, Chris, you and I would both get into that blood path as that symbol gesture of, you know, if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, who doesn't ever step in that path? It's Abraham. Old Abe's tuned out to the, you know, to a dark, terrible dream. Why is he having a terrible dream? Probably because he knows what's at stake. This is brutal. And what does pass through it? Two objects, a smoking pot and a flaming torch, which is startling because both of those throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures are, are often used as symbols of deity, of symbols of God. And so now you have God passing through it twice, which in essence, God is saying, when you drop your end of the bargain, Abraham, I will take care of this business too. And that's a startling revelation. That's a Good Friday message. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that you're exactly right, that these, that these elements, like, you can get what is being indicated, but once you see it, that it's real, that there was really uh, Hittite kings that did this with their vassals, and, and you say, well, wow, that has a political impact. I, again, I just think it adds this whole other layer to it. And the exciting thing is, is that archaeology and the study of the ancient Near East is finding new things all the time that help us uh, suss out some of these uh, these further connections uh, which are which are always interesting. But if we transition, though, and we think about not just things that have existed in the past, but also coming down to our present, there are, uh, until today, modern peoples, um, particularly in, um, in the Middle East, um, even in places such as Jordan and Saudi Arabia and, and other parts, Yemen and so on, um, where their particular styles of life, whether we're talking about in small villages or Bedouin culture, that they have an impact upon the way we read the Bible. So could you comment on that, this idea of ethnography? Yeah, ethnography is a real informative mode of study for us to help us develop deeper cultural background awareness for the Bible, for sure. And there's probably dozens of examples that we could call upon. And uh, unearth is the wrong metaphor to use, but pull upon and, and find them. And, you know, one, I mean, just one that comes to mind immediately for me, Chris, is, you know, we were, you know, I have this video, I, I show it to my students sometimes. There's a group in Israel and they are standing there. Uh, they've come across this this shepherd and this Arab shepherd with his flock and they're just having a conversation with him in the video. And when you are, when they, when the shepherd all of a sudden has to engage the sheep who have kind of gotten ahead of him, he engages them and he begins speaking, you know, 
in in very ba-ba language to them. And they they ba-ba back to him in a very, you know, unique way. They stop, the whole flock stops, turns in the direction of the shepherd, the one chief sheep. I don't know if it's the chief sheep or what, but he's the one that talks back to the shepherd. They literally are having a conversation back and forth um, or, or making noises toward each other. And they are dialogue, whether they understood each other or not is a whole nother story, but the sheep do change direction. And somehow, some way with his language, the shepherd was able to change the direction of the sheep. And it's striking because you have the goat that are not in line at all. They're kind of doing their own thing. And you have the the, she, the sheep dog kind of, you know, barking and, and nipping at them. But you have the shepherd that's communicated to them one thing. And they went from going one way and shifted maybe 45 degrees to go another way. And all of a sudden, when you see that, when you see it, and if you're familiar with the biblical text and you've immersed yourself in the biblical text, you immediately start to draw connections. Because what does the Bible talk about? It says things in the Old Testament about um, how the Lord is your shepherd in Psalm 23. He leads you towards green pastures. He's the one who speaks to you. And then you can take it into the New Testament. You think about what Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? My sheep will know my voice. They will not respond to a stranger. And all of a sudden you start to realize there's this unique way that a shepherd can speak to his sheep. And what's Jesus saying there? He's saying, I want to have a unique relationship with you. And I want to have a conversation with you. And I can't help but wonder, that's in John 10. I can't help but wonder if in the very next chapter, there's a play on that with Lazarus, who's in the tomb. He's been dead for four days and Jesus comes and how does Jesus wake him up? Jesus doesn't, you know, go in there and touch him and pull him up as he does with other people. He calls out to Lazarus and Lazarus, he calls his name Lazarus. And it's as if on cue, Lazarus hears the voice of the shepherd building off of what we just read in the last chapter that Jesus was telling his disciples about. It says, if on cue, Lazarus gets up and says, I'm here, I'm, I'm awake. I woke up. I heard the shepherd's voice. Just startling ramifications. If you think about yeah, it, yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's an excellent point. Actually, I'd never thought of that before, and I think that's a really interesting point that you're that you're making in drawing a connection between John ten and, and John eleven. And those who study John, John eleven just stands out as this key, you know, the culmination of the of the six signs, and it's a it's a really uh, I think very interesting point to make between those between those two and. You know, as you draw on this, it, it's kind of like, you know, you're 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 drawing on the idea of of shepherding being a theological idea that is applied to the way that it just actually functions with sheep and shepherds, and something we see in the Old Testament, and something we see in the New Testament. And then the other thing that I think is so interesting about this is that it's it's just with with this cultural background. Is it's it's like an, another layer that you're adding to the meaning of the text that is in addition to things like intertextuality, where you're bringing on this idea of the shepherds that you could point back to Ezekiel and you could point back to, of course, Psalm 23 coming in there. And what's so cool is in these topics where something like shepherding hasn't changed, like there's no indicative feature of shepherding between uh, 33 AD uh, when Lazarus was raised from the dead or if we go back to the Exodus, it's the same type of shepherding. Uh, so you can see it until today. Right. And that's the beauty of ethnography. 
That's the beauty of ethnography. And, and the same is true, you know, we could pull a few other examples. The same is true with, you know, you go and visit a, a Bedouin family in, in the wilderness of the Negev or wherever, and you encounter them and you experience hospitality and you eat bread that they make in the, almost the same way that they've been making for millennia. What's changed? Maybe the, the metal that they use to bake on. Um, and that's it. That's just because they figured out how to make a better metal. But it's, it's truly remarkable when you think about how ethnography can help inform your cultural awareness uh, and, and even just observing. So, you know, you go to En Gedi, you go anywhere in the, in the wilderness and you watch an ibex on the cliffside and you can immediately say, oh, wow, what does Habakkuk 3.19 say? The Lord is my strength. And what does it say then? It says, he will make my feet like the feet of a deer enabling me to walk in high places. Now, if you're just reading that passage, Chris, and you and I are hanging out in, you know, Corpus Christi, Texas, and just chilling, we're reading that. It's, it's okay. The whitetail buck. Yeah. <laughs> it's, what does that mean? But when you sit there and you can watch all of a sudden Ibex, sure-footed, walking up the cliffside, it's like, oh, that's what God wants to do for me, make my path like that. I got it now. And it takes on this whole robust meaning when you can see it and draw these intercultural connections and geographic and uh, and zoological, I guess is that that's a zoological connection, building it off of off of animal imagery. There's just so much to be gleaned. There's so there's you're totally right, and you know this is really again one of the the, the, the main things I appreciated about my time at Jerusalem University College, and as well as studying in Israel in general. And I, I would say that's kind of like a two step process because. Many people who love the Bible, who love reading the, the, the biblical backgrounds, and they start to get excited about biblical archaeology and that type of thing, it, this, it can kind of open you up to this world of connections, uh, which is, I think, great in the first step in this process. But there's also a kind of wisdom and skill, we could even call it hermeneutic, to how we are to apply cultural backgrounds. Um, and, and my point is, is that uh, not all cultural background connections are created equal. Uh, many of them can um, be misguided and many of them can be searching. And I found sometimes that kind of the, the, the risk that we run in, um, in, in loving these biblical backgrounds and loving these cultural backgrounds that help us inform the text, that they often become the point as opposed to the meaning of what the text is getting at. And I just would caution people uh, to, yes, love it, to, to, to go and, and go to Israel, go to Egypt, go to Jordan, um, bring out these, these things. But don't let that be the, the horse that's, uh, that's pulling the wagon. I mean, the text is still the text, but we're trying to just add this, this color and this background and this, and this nuance, which is why a course like Cultural Backgrounds of the Bible at JUC and other places gives you the tools necessary to to dive into that and that's really what we want to do in this podcast is do that with archaeology do that with cultural backgrounds do that to some extent with language do that with history and geography give you these uh, skills to be able to uh, do the things that we love to do uh, to, to make these uh, to make these background uh, connections and so one of the things that where, where I was going with that is uh, if we think about Bedouin culture uh, in particular, it can give us a lot of insights into what, what Oliver described. You can think about even uh, temporal farming, uh, nomadic life, moving from place to place, uh, and, and even just the, the way they live in terms of clans and connections like that. 
but one of the disadvantages is because that's been around for so long, the assumption was is that uh, Bedouin life is unsophisticated and Bedouin life is not uh, able to have hierarchical relationships in terms of government and, and polity and that type of thing. And one of the really interesting things uh, in recent years is the discoveries of the copper industry at Kirbet and Nahas in, in, uh, in Jordan and just over the border in Israel in, in, in Timna down by the, by the, the Red Sea. Uh, we have clear indications from about the 13th century to about the 9th century BC where we have Edomites probably, maybe other peoples engaged in high level um, industry that clearly was connected with uh, the coast and probably the hill country in the areas of what's going to be Judah and Philistia, and clearly indicating that there had to have been some type of administration, there had to have been some type of control over the trade, and we don't have even a wall in many instances to connect with architecture that goes with these guys that we can call Edomites. And so it shows you that, uh, so for instance, Erez ben Yosef, Tom Levy, these guys have been arguing for a while that there's this um, architectural bias that we have in archaeology. And so in some sense, we have to like, we have to grade or, or, or nuance what we mean when we're talking about archaeology, when we're talking about ethnography, these types of things. And because they, they can change too, you know, the, 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 the peoples that are here, their situations might change. Um, and so there's just, again, there's a, a variety of ways that you can apply these types of things um, that, that is very exciting, whether we're talking about actual finds uh, or we're talking about peoples that are, are alive now and how they live. And uh, all of that I, I just find to be super, very fascinating. Yeah, it's, it, you raise a really important, you raised quite a few really good points there, but one in particular that I, I just want to reemphasize, Chris, I think it's super important that we are careful not to push the data to say more than it can, and also not to go searching for a cultural background because uh, you will end up making anything fit for you. And that's dangerous ground to be on. So it's important you have you have places where you can process these things, that you spend time in the research. You're building a massive infrastructure, a big network inside your, your mind and your research that's trying to help things cross-connect. Keep reviewing that web as it gets bigger and bigger and more complex and continue to ask the questions that you need to ask and bounce things off of you know, your colleagues uh, and, and process it. Don't do this in a vacuum. It's important. That's why it's, it's fun to be able to do this podcast with you, Chris, and others that'll be involved because I think it gives us a chance to dialogue about some of the things we're learning about, some of the things that we're studying, and um, to hear the, the hard questions that make us think about perspectives. And then finally, the other point you had made I thought was really important is we do want to apply these things. And while we don't want to force it, we do want to ask, so what? Uh, we want to be able to understand the Bible better. That's what these backgrounds can do. They take things from analog perspective to HD, if you want to use a television television analogy, or another one, right, an older one maybe is the black and white to the color. The story's still the same. It's just added a lot more flavor and perspective with the new additions of those advancements. And so that's in essence what we're doing. We're trying to help enhance our perspective on these matters and maybe even understand the story in a better way, a sharper way, not necessarily a new way, just a sharper way. And I think that's, that's always helpful. Totally agree. And I, I just add, it's really fun. Like yeah. it, it's, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> it's, it's fun. 
um, it's just a, it's a fun thing to, to, to be able to be a part of. It's, and it's new and, and exciting. So one last question. Yeah. Uh, one last Go example for, for us. Um, and this is going to not be history, not necessarily be um, directly related to culture, more in the, in the realm of legal code law. How do the law codes uh, that we have in, in, in Exodus, and maybe you can give us some examples, uh, compare to what we see in especially Mesopotamia and the Hittites? Uh, we talked about maybe an example from Exodus. Yeah. Well, for sure, you know, these are, these are, this is a textual background now, purely, we kind of looked at an iconography one, obviously there's all kinds we can pull from sites and, and archaeology, and we've looked now at ethnogra- ethnographic study, now we're looking at a text one, which are things we've pulled out of, out of sites. And we have information about law codes, and law codes are a rough, rough, it's a rough term, you could call it a covenant code, there seems to be this deep interconnection between covenant law and treaty, and Kenneth Kitchen has a massive volume on that, uh, you know, treaty law and covenant, I think is the title of it. But there's a, there's a overlapping of these three features. But if you just look strictly at the case law, the casuistic legal material. There's quite a bit of intersection between what we find in case laws found in the Torah with case laws that we have found in these quote unquote law codes from the Mesopotamia area from the Fertile Crescent all the way over to um, where the Hittites established their kingdom in Anatolia. And we know of, of not very many texts, there's only, there's less than 10 law codes that we know of. They were copied over and over again and reformed along the way. But if you look at one text in Exodus, and we'll just compare Exodus here with these texts, I'm going to look at Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25, which is in the book of the covenant. And what it says, I'll just read it to you. You know, the text says this, this case, if people are fighting and a pregnant woman is hit and gives birth prematurely, but they're is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you shall take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Ouch. So you have this perspective here that if there's two people fighting and then there's this pregnant woman, is she a bystander? Is she part of the fight? The text is a bit ambiguous. It's not clear, uh, but she gets hit and she now gives birth prematurely, but there's no injury. Then it's all good. We just owe a fine. Uh, We owe a fine to the woman's husband, whatever he demands. But if there's injury, whatever it is, it's life for life. Uh, And now you look at the other law codes that are during this time. We have uh, a law in the laws of Lippet Ishtar. It says this, according to Martha Roth's translation, if something, an awilu maybe, strikes the daughter of a man and causes her to lose her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver 30 shekels of silver. So notice, there's a payment that's issued if the fetus is lost. It's not life for life in this case. Although Exodus isn't very clear whose life is in view, and maybe that's intentional. Uh, So that's important to know. But if she dies, then the male shall be killed. So her life is valuable. If she dies, that male shall be killed. If a blank strikes a slave woman of a man and causes her to lose her fetus, he shall weigh out five shekels. So the price of a slave woman, much, much less. And you're going to have these similar laws appearing in the laws of Hammurabi, uh, both versions, the early and the late versions of the Hittite laws, as well as the Middle Assyrian laws and Tablet A. And 
you're going to see it evolve and shift. It's the price of the the, the price of uh, reparation is going to go down as time goes on. So the fetus, when it's lost in the laws of Hammurabi, is going to cost less than the fetus did in the laws of Lipit Ishtar, which is an earlier law code. And the same will be true even for the Hittite laws. All the way to the middle Assyrian period, where now your, your fetus costs only 9,000 shekels of lead. We're not even dealing with silver anymore. So there's a constant degradation of the value of the fetus, which is interesting. And you have payment being made. But in none, no case in Exodus do we hear about reparation for payment. So when you compare and contrast, and you develop cultural understanding for Exodus. And you sit here and you think, okay, how can I understand this better? Well, for starters, Exodus has uh, some pretty high value attached to both the woman and the fetus. That no matter what, even if she's, if she, everybody's okay, there's still payment that has to be made. And it's life for life where you can't get off scot-free uh, with, with an issue of payment. So right there you see a progressiveness in the text, which I don't think people really understand or get. You, you meet a lot of average Joe people or average Sally people, and they always read the Torah or they don't read it or they hear about it. They think that the Bible's boring and it's, it's, um, it's so legalistic. I can't believe in that kind of stuff. And I think to myself, but when you compare it to what was going on in the ancient world at the time, it actually has a higher ethic on human life than all the other cultures, which is significant when you think about justice and mercy and the right ways of living. So there's things like that to be drawn out as well. When you start building cultural information and background, uh, you start to see the Bible almost in new light, um, uh, maybe the way it was meant to be seen in original context. I don't know if that right. makes sense, I, Chris. I don't you know, it totally, it totally does. And, and I mean, for me, the way I think about this, I mean, if we think about the, the biblical ideal of people being made in the image of God, I mean, in some ways, the Mesopotamian law codes, Hittite law codes, at the very least, shows you that there is some kind of protection, you know, that, that's based in the, the human idea of what happens, and it's beautiful, and it's and it's. I think it's divine. I mean, it's something that's built into the human um, conception, and, and even these law codes, like you mentioned, even the names Ishtar. I mean, it's connecting it with a divine connection, and it shows you it shows you that um, that it's already there. But then, when God reveals these laws uh, and establishes this this law code in, in Exodus, it takes what's there. Or what's out there, and it goes above and beyond. And, and and I would say, even though it's in kind of the the dry, dusty section of the Bible that people try to get through as fast as they can to get back through narrative, these things are so essential because these actually become some of the most defining characteristics of what it, it is going to mean to be God's people in terms of the first temple period, and especially even the second temple period. Whenever um, you were talking about this, I was doing some reading recently. In, in a later period, uh, I think it was reading through a uh, a week in the life of Rome, which is a great uh, a great series put out by University Press. And one of the points they make that um, that in ancient Rome, the the idea that you had full control over the life of any child, whether it would be through abortion or through exposure, and female children, the daughters tended to be exposed much more often. And that this was a daily part of existence for Roman families, from, from, from Rome itself throughout the Roman world. And so from the very beginning, one of the single defining characteristics that, 
that sh- that pointed that that Judaism, but also this new sect made up of primarily Gentiles who were holding to this new form of of a Jewish faith, that they didn't expose their young, that they had a high view of human life rooted in the the idea that people are made in the image of God. And if you want to trace that back to where that ideal comes from, of course, it, we, can, we can see it in Genesis 1, we can see it in, in Genesis 2, and so on. But the way it gets, it gets uh, ported over to national Israel is in their law code. And so it's just tracing, as you've done here, and showing these, cultural, these, these cultures that existed around Israel that have it a little bit, but God, through revelation, gives the, these law codes a, a much higher standard. And then that plays a role in the ethic and the morality all throughout um, Israel's history till we get the arrival of Christ. And we have Gentiles who formerly lived in never thinking about this was wrong to where now they're shifted. And if we fast forward to where we are today, it's these same ideas that are at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so it connects us with this story. I mean, it connects us from the beginning to the end. And so it's, you know, this is a powerful one, I, I think. And so what you've done here is you've given us some great examples, uh, whether we're talking about depictions of God himself and how he sees himself and how people should see him. We've seen peoples and through ethnography. And here we've seen how God has uh, given us in, in the book of Exodus the way that we are to interact with a specific circumstance and how that touches on ethic and morality and theology. Uh, and again, it's not that you can't get that from reading Exodus by itself, but to know that there's all this baggage and this background behind, it makes it all the more interesting. Absolutely. And, and it, exactly. And I would just, I want to caveat, I mean, somebody might say, well, wait, you just read us one law out of the out of all of them in the book of the covenant. But if you were to go through all of them, you're going to notice in, in many cases, maybe not every one, a higher ethic, you're going to notice things that aren't in the ancient Near Eastern law code, such as like a year of Jubilee, which would be unheard of in most ancient cultures. And in Israel, in ancient Israel, it says, no, actually, there's going to be a reset. There's going to be an opportunity for everybody to get back on equal footing every seven years or every 50 years, I'm sorry. Um, and it's this concept of, you know, that's right there is a high value on human life. No one will be rich and no one will be poor. We will reset things so that people will be well and okay. So it's that's, great. That's, that's great. That's great. Now we're out of time. Yeah, we could keep going. I'm sure we just, we, we could keep going, but we're going to do, we're going to do a couple things. We're, we're trying to develop some kind of like podcast liturgy. So we're going to ask you a couple okay. questions. Don't, don't even, you don't have to think about it too hard. These are just short answer. Okay. Um, on an excavation morning, because I know you've excavated a little bit in different places, <laughs> coffee, coffee, tea, or energy drink? Coffee. Okay, coffee. Okay. Uh, <laughs> coffee. Me, me, me too. Although I I've also do energy drinks sometimes in, excavation, in the summer. Excavation early morning, excavation mid-morning, <laughs> excavation late morning, and excavation um, lunchtime. All coffee. <laughs> every time, every time, every time. Coffee, okay. Uh, the the uh, Turkish coffee, or what do you go with the instant? No, no, Turkish. If, if it's there, Turkish, Turkish for sure. And that's Turkish, not going to be there all the time. Uh, where are you digging at? I got to go get some good Turkish coffee at your site. Yeah, Turkish coffee is good stuff. You got you to prepare in advance. Yeah. Uh, and then also have, a, have a, a, a good architect that comes and makes you coffee at breakfast. Oh, um, man. Yeah, that's that's what we have at Vornoff. You're living the um, dream. We're living the dream. Yeah. Okay. First thing that pops into your head when you hear the words Indiana Jones. 
excitement, joy. <laughs> it could be me. Good. It could be me. It could be me. Okay. Um, let's see. Let me ask you some other ones. Just so you know, um, just so you know, this is funny. All my friends, all my friends growing up have all, now that, now that I'm in this field, they all call me Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Henry Jones Jr. I prefer. <laughs> okay. Most surprising thing that occurred while you were on an excavation. My wife finding 3,000 year old bronze earrings. And me nice. not finding anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Where, where was that at? Oh, this was, this was a decade ago now. Uh, we were digging together. It was her, her one and only time. She's never going to do it again. Uh, Kirbid Kaifa, we were there with Yossi Garfinkel and his team. And also uh, the team from, uh, I think it was Andrews University, I believe, was excavating there with us. Uh, yeah, we were digging. It was probably one of the last days, if not like the last day of, I think the fifth season, I want to say she, you know, the metal detector guys coming through and and she's like, Oh, I'm right here. I'll go ahead and sweep away. She finds intact, completely a, a pair of bronze earrings. It was pretty awesome. So she was pretty, pretty excited. Amazing. So there's no feeling like that. Yeah. And you're exposed. Yeah, and I'm just, just sitting there like, he kidding me. Come on. All yeah. I've been finding are yeah. pot shirts. They were <laughs> rocks. <laughs> you were providing the context. I was. Ex it was very important context, actually. No, it was a blast. Actually, I was. I, we were working with Kyle Keimer, who was one of the hosts on nice. the podcast. He was in. Yep. He was our. He was our. He was our uh, overseeing the square at the time. Two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, novel that you love. John Steinbeck, East of Eden. Ooh. Uh, and on topic with Eden, we mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Nice one. Oh, that's a great book. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't, I, I've never read it. I'll have to, I'll have to put it on the list. Um, last question. If you, as, as you're, we're all under COVID restrictions, uh, but hopefully things are opening up. If you could pick anywhere in the world to travel to related to archaeology, ancient Near Eastern backgrounds that you haven't been able to go to now, where would it be and brief answer why? I really want to go. It's not in the time period that I'm like an expert, you know, that I've spent my, my life so far studying. It's it's a New Testament. I want to go to Rome. I really want to go and see um, the just the, the remains in Rome and what we can enjoy there. So partly because I, I love seeing those types of things and learning about history. Um, and also because I love pizza and Italian pizzas there. So I would just be eating pizza every single night. This this is a good answer, and I would say I'm glad I was kind of addicted to uh, Old Testament, First Temple period, uh, Bronze and Iron Age before I visited Rome. Because had I gone to Rome first, I probably would have been a completely Second Temple period. So it's you, we already got you in the right period. Uh, so you won't you won't feel the need. But it's an amazing uh, good answer. You, you you'd be hard pressed to find a better. What answer. about you? So, Where would you go? Ooh, uh, uh, I would say um, it's 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 really tough, uh, but I would probably um, go to the Bekaa Valley uh, in Lebanon um, to to Baalbek or some of these. It's just I've seen photos of it. I've never been able to go. It's beautiful, um, and there's so many interesting connections that are that are connected there with what you can read, of course, in in the Bible. Um, and it's it's like the place. That the Bible spends a lot of time on, you know, in in in, in Israel, the border is right there at, at at Dan, but there's still a bunch of stuff right over the border that is just beautiful. It's just very inaccessible, and archaeology there is is relatively in its infancy, at least 
in um, different parts of the country. Infancy is not probably the best term, but it's it's, it's in uh, early stages of, of being, or it's always kind of uh, you know with with all the modern situations. Sometimes it's pushed back. Now it's a different situation along the coast as there's great established, but that's where I would go somewhere in Lebanon. Um, but anyway, thank you for for being on. It was great for us to do our our first podcast together. Hopefully, the first of many. Uh, I hope we've. Uh, covered, uh, I, I know we have covered a number of interesting topics, and we look forward to having you on again. So, uh, and, and hosting uh, further episodes yeah. as we move along. Can't so, wait. Uh, this has been On Script, the Biblical World Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.